Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have given us your word. We pray that you would show us Christ. Would you reveal your glory to us as we study Nehemiah 5, that you would soften our hearts, that you would speak to us directly through your word, that you would be honored and glorified this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would turn with me to Nehemiah 5 in your pew Bibles, that should be on page 401. Well, some of you have seen uh, the movie Wall Street, and you know the character in that movie played by Michael Douglas. His name's Gordon Gecko. He says this in the movie. He says, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Or listen to these quotes from multimillionaire businessman Kevin O'Leary. He says, I'm not trying to make friends. I'm trying to make money. I want to go to bed richer than when I woke up. The pursuit of wealth is a wonderful thing. <laughs> now we may get a little chuckle from these, these quotes. But in reality, they, they paint a picture, a pretty true picture of our culture. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's a cutthroat, I'm-going-to-get-mine, looking-out-for-numero-uno mentality and attitude, which can be quite dangerous. And the core of this thinking is really it's pursuing self-interests above the interests of others, advancing myself, trying to protect myself, even at the cost of others. But if we took time to actually think about this attitude, it wouldn't take much for us to realize that this surfaces in more than just money and it surfaces in more than just potentially business, sports teams, relationships, schools, families. The pursuit of self-interest above the interests of others produces broken relationships, broken communities, Teams will break down. Businesses will struggle. Families can even crumble when people pursue their own self-interests above the interests of those that are around them. Now, this is something we'd expect from the world, isn't it? But the surprise of our passage, Nehemiah 5, is that this very heart, this very attitude is at the core of God's people. And it's not far off from even our own circumstances as it can crop up even in our own life in the community of the church now. Well, just to to catch us up again, a few things have been clear as we've studied Nehemiah this summer is that God's sovereignty, that God is absolutely in control. It's produced a confident action from God's people. And we've seen God's people, they've stand strong and persevered amidst opposition from the outside And as opposition comes, the people, they rally together. They continue to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. But we come to a shift here. There's now oppression from within the community of God's people. And it could tear everything down. You see, there's wealthy Jews. They're pursuing their own self-interest above the interest of God's people. They're taking advantage of the poor. They're using their status, their wealth, their resources, not to serve God's people, not to care for God's people, but to actually exploit them. (laughs) 
And we see this in the first five verses of Nehemiah 5. So let's read the first five verses and kind of see the scene that Nehemiah paints here. Verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. There's been difficult work that's going on. They're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. It's a consuming job for God's people. Hard work, hard days, late nights, and it's wearing down the people. And here we see verse 1. There's a great outcry because there's a desperate situation. There's people within the community. They have no money, no resources, no ability to care for themselves in a lot of ways. And add on to that, verse 3, it says there's a famine. These are desperate times, tough times going on within the community of God's people. And the men, they're working long hours on the walls and families are struggling to provide for themselves. You know, some, they, they had no land, they had no ability to provide for themselves, so they're just simply crying out for sustenance. <laughs> and there are others, they're taking on heavy amounts of debt. They're mortgaging what they do have, their land, their vineyards, the things that they have. But there's loan sharks within the community that are giving out these loan, loans at outrageous rates. And so debt is starting to pile up on God's people. Some in the community, they can't pay these heavy taxes that they owe. So as a result, within the community of God's people, they're having to sell even their children into a form of debt slavery so that they can pay off their debt through work there. They could soon lose their land. But it's their very own brothers who are putting this heavy burden upon them. The situation is serious The poor and the needy within the community, they're not being cared for. Instead, they're being taken advantage of. So we see many within the people of Israel, they're pursuing their own self-interest above the interests of God's people. So two things as we go through the rest of our passage. We're going to see very clearly that, one, not fearing God puts self-interest above God's interests. And then on the flip side, fearing God puts God's interests above our interests. So let's read the next section of our verses, verse 6 through 13. It says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry, Nehemiah says. I took counsel within myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? They were silent. Could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? 
Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and I made them swear to do that as they had promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. Now again, not fearing God puts self-interests above God's interests. We see in verse 6, Nehemiah is angry. He's angry here with a righteous anger against the injustice that he sees in the community. He's furious. But amazingly, he steps back. He takes counsel within himself before he acts. What wisdom we see here from Nehemiah. But almost certainly during this time, as we've seen throughout the first few chapters of Nehemiah, Nehemiah would have cried out to God in prayer, praying to God. He probably scanned through the scriptures and he probably came across Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15. And I just want to read some of these scriptures here for you to get a little context. And I want you to think about how they relate to our passage in Nehemiah 5. So listen to these words. It says, if your brother becomes poor... You shall support him. You shall live, he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, for they are my servants. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. And listen to Deuteronomy 15. It says, But there will be no poor among you. Open your hand to him. Lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Now, as we looked at these passages on Wednesday with our Hayek students, I asked them to do the same thing, to look at Nehemiah 5, look at Leviticus 25, see how they relate to one another. And one student raises their hand. They say, um, it actually looks like Leviticus 25 is the exact opposite of Nehemiah 5. I was like, you're exactly right. That's exactly what is going on here. Is that these Old Testament passages, these Old Testament scriptures, they describe how God's people were supposed to treat one another with kindness, with care, with love. Why? Because God in love had demonstrated kindness and generosity and grace to them by bringing them out of Egypt, out of slavery to serve him. And what's the motivation that we heard in Leviticus 25? but also in Nehemiah 5, the fear of God, the fear of God. God wants his people to imitate and to reflect his heart and his interest in the way that they treat one another, in the way that they care for one another. And so with this in mind, as Nehemiah probably was reading through these scriptures, and then he looks out at God's people, he sees the exact opposite. He sees people taking advantage of one another, using their status, using their resources, not to serve, not to love, not to care, but pursuing their own self-interests, 
So Nehemiah, he confronts these sinful hearts. Let's look again in Nehemiah 5 at verses 8 and 9. It says, We, as far as we were able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent. They could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? So what's the issue here? What's the issue? Is that the people of Israel, they were in slavery to the other nations. And they do everything that they can to buy back their brothers and sisters from slavery. But then we see right here, they're doing the exact same thing as the nations, as they're putting their brothers and sisters into debt, slavery there. The people, they have nothing to say because Nehemiah, he's called them out. But verse 9 is very clear. What's the root cause of this? Is that they're not walking in the fear of God. See, there's something wrong with their view of God. And the reality is that what we think about God, who he is, and what he's done, it impacts how we treat one another. So let's think about for a moment, what does it mean to fear God? Well, I know many of you have probably read C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there's this part of the book where Mr. Beaver is talking with Susan, one of the children, about Aslan, the Christ figure. And he says this, he says, Aslan is a lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. You see, God is king. He's powerful. He's great. He's awesome. He's worthy to have all bowed down before him. And it's not a safe place to turn and run from God. But as Susan was comforted by Mr. Beaver, God is good. And we can have confidence that when we turn to him, we will be with him. So to fear God, it means to have a reverence. It means to have an awe at God's power, at God's greatness. But it also means to have a deep love for God's goodness and God's grace which overflows into a desire to obey and imitate God. Why? Because God is worthy. Because God alone is worthy. So in verse 9, Nehemiah, he tells the people, they're not walking in the fear of God. And because this vertical relationship with God, their view of God is skewed, their horizontal relationships with one another, they're falling apart. God's heart and his interest have always been to give in abundance his grace And generously give to his people for their good and for their welfare. But the people's heart, it's not loving. It's not caring for God's people. There's no fear of God in their hearts. But what's at stake as they're acting and living in this way? In verse 9, it says, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? See, God says, Or Nehemiah says, you need to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the other nations. Well, you all know the saying, like father, like son. Well, my dad's a pastor, and one day he was preaching. So my little brother, when he was young, he came home one day, and he set up all his little stuffed animals. 
He put up this little pulpit, put his Bible on there, and he started preaching right to Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> like father, like son. Well, if you got me and my other brothers together, you saw how we interacted, how we played sports, how we talked to one another, how we even looked, and then you see my dad. You'd see a resemblance. Like father, like son. You see, God's people, they're supposed to imitate and reflect God their father. They're supposed to imitate and reflect God their father to the world to show his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his generosity that God had shown them. But instead, they're distorting this picture of God by putting one another into slavery, out of selfishness, out of their own self-interest. So the other nations, they could look at Israel, they could laugh and say, what kind of God do you serve? Look at how you're treating one another. Look at what you're doing with one another. And Nehemiah, he's calling the people to evaluate their hearts. He's calling them to repentance in verses 11 and 12. What does he say? He says, abandon these sinful practices. Restore what was taken. Embrace generosity. They need to walk in the fear of God and imitate and reflect his heart and his interest in the way that they treat one another. Now, as we read through the rest of Nehemiah, we're going to see that the the people's heart, they still need work. It's incomplete. And ultimately, God's people in the Old Testament, they're waiting for God to give his people a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. But we do see here real change that's in line with repentance. Nehemiah, he's asking them to return all this land to cancel all these debts, which was great. There's a lot of money at stake here. But amazingly, the people, they respond. They respond in obedience. It's a costly thing. And towards the end, in verses 12 and 13, there's this symbolic act of Nehemiah where he empties his pockets, in essence, and is saying, may God empty you out of his pockets if you do not follow your word and obey as you have just said. But we see this picture of great worship and praise and obedience in response to this charge. You see, instead of reflecting God's heart at the beginning of our passage in love and generosity, they're acting out of self-interests. There was no fear of God in their heart. There was no offer's greatness. There was no love for his goodness and his grace. But as Nehemiah confronts them, they respond in repentance and obedience Not fearing God puts self-interests above God's interests. Well, let's look at our final section, verses 14 to 19. It says this, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people And took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall. And we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense... For each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. 
Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now, secondly, fearing God puts God's interest above our own interests. Now, what, what is described here would have happened later on in Nehemiah's life, but it's put here specifically to give us a picture of what it looks like to fear God and to love God's people and put the interests of God's people above yourself in response to that. See, what do we see in verses 14 and 15? Is that Nehemiah, he lets go of his rights. He denies himself this food allowance that the governors could have taken. And all the other governors did that. The previous ones. But Nehemiah, he does not lord his position over God's people. And instead, he puts the interest and the welfare and the good of God's people above himself. Nehemiah, he also, he lets go of his status. In verse 16, we read about how Nehemiah enters in with the people to work alongside them. To serve them. He lets go of his rights. He lets go of his status. And he even, he lets go of his stuff. He lets go of what he has as he gives to God's people at his expense each day. Oxen, sheep, birds, wine. And interesting, it says, in abundance. Meaning that he gives generously to God's people. But it even costs him greatly. It costs him to care for God's people in this way. He's demonstrating service and sacrifice out of a fear of God that we're going to see. Verse 15, very clearly. Why does Nehemiah act this way? Let's read again at the end of verse 15. It says, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. That Nehemiah had a reverence for God's greatness. Nehemiah had a love for God's goodness and his grace and the way that God had demonstrated to God's people. And as a response, he wanted to obey and imitate and demonstrate a deep love and concern for the people there. Verse 18, it shows us that he even had a deep care for the people because the burden was heavy on them. And it concludes, he's just kind of praying, saying, God, remember me. Remember how I've acted. Saying, There have been no impure motives in the way that I've treated God's people. But as we read these words about Nehemiah, they ultimately, they point us to a greater servant in Jesus. That Jesus did not claim his rights, did not hold on to his status, but came and entered into our world, our situation, for the poor, for the broken, letting go of his rights. Not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. Being obedient to the Father, saying, not my will, but your will be done. Obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. The costly generosity of God in sending Jesus to die for us. So we need to think through how we can respond to the kindness and the goodness and the grace of God revealed in Jesus, as we're thinking about how to apply this passage, there's a vertical application with our relationship with God. There's a horizontal application with how we treat one another. But first, this vertical application is that we need to first embrace the generosity of God through Jesus. 
God's heart and his interest, they've always been for the good and the welfare of his people. He wants to bring us out of slavery to our sin so that we could love him, so that we could serve him. And some here, maybe this morning, you're recognizing the costly generosity of God through Jesus as he went to the cross for you, for your sins, so that you could know the riches of a relationship with him. You see here in this passage, even before we think about how we treat one another, how we love one another, God's reminding us that he first has loved us and shown us grace. He first has cared for us and shown us love in Jesus. And we need to daily embrace that. That we are poor, we're broken, we're in need, and yet Christ became poor for us so that we could know the riches of a relationship with God. And if we've embraced that kindness and that generosity of God, it means daily to walk in the fear of God. To get low before God's greatness each day in prayer. To embrace and let your hearts be softened by God's goodness and his grace as we look to his word each day. To fear the Lord. Which also means that we can trust that all that we have is found in God. Or let me repeat that. It says, trust that all that we need is found in God. You see, when anxiety or fear of the unknown comes about, the result is that we can almost potentially try to protect ourselves even at the expense of others. But to fear God means to run towards him knowing that we have our greatest treasure in him. So as we focus on this vertical relationship, walking in the fear of God, our horizontal relationships within this community of the church will be radically different. To give generously of our abilities and resources to love and care for one another. When I was 20, I interned with a youth group and we did a week-long camp And there was some powerful preaching of God's word from the youth pastor. And I had a group of about 10 students. And there was one particular night after a sermon, there was a convicting message. And God's heart was penetrating the hearts of our students. And in this group of 10, I came to learn that one student's dad was in prison. One student's dad recently passed away. Students were wrestling with sexual sin. One student was adopted and struggling with his new family. And that was just the beginning of the list, only within a group of 10. (laughs) But by God's grace with the other leaders, they were able to step in and care for these students and love these students. But what I thought about after that is like, that is a very rare occurrence in a group of 10 to have that many situations, to have that many difficult circumstances. But a few years after that time, I've realized that's not very rare at all. I wonder if we broke this room up into groups of 10. What would be the difficulties? What would be the pain? What would be the hardships, the financial pressures that you would hear? See, the the fallen and broken world, it's touched every one of us. But here's the thing. As the community of God's people, as the church, how we respond to those financial pressures how we respond to the difficulties and the pain that we see within God's people and amongst one another. It needs to be radically different 
than how the world responds. It should be different. It should look different because God's people are to imitate and reflect the heart of God in the way that we treat one another. Think of the early church in Acts, Acts 2. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and awe or fear came upon every soul and all who believed were together and had all things in common, selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Radical generosity towards one another. Putting the good, putting the interest of one another above themselves. And right there in the middle of that passage, we hear awe. Awe came upon the people. And because they feared God rightly, they loved one another radically. It looked different. So in our situation here today, is the way that we love and care for one another as the church... (laughs) especially for those in need? Is it different than the world? Or do we judge each other in the same way? Do we gossip about our friend's children who are making poor decisions in the same way that the world does? Are we just as greedy? Do we use our income in the same way? Do we take advantage of our position and our status to advance ourselves? Is it a dog-eat-dog world, looking out for numero uno, even within the church? Is it the same as the world? Or is there a countercultural love and generosity within this community of the body of Christ that looks radically different than the world and actually points the world to our God? What are the needs in this community? How, How can you meet them? What are the needs within our children's ministry? Caring for the little ones who are in need. Caring for families who are in need. What are the family burdens of the people in the rows that are sitting next to you? What financial pressures could you meet with generosity? Now, it's not a matter of whether you can give $10 or whether you can give $10,000. That's not the issue. But am I actively giving of my resources and abilities to care for God's people, to love for God's people, because that's the way that God has treated us in Jesus. Be generous with one another, even in abundance, even if it's at great cost to yourself. You know, I'm encouraged by many of our adult leaders in Hayek's who take off precious vacation days and time off to spend time serving our students and serving our missionary partners on world impact trips. I received an update from a missionary friend who's below his support raising needs. I wonder how many of those emails Pastor Bruce Wilson gets. And I wonder how we as a community can support our brothers and sisters around the globe with financial assistance, with our prayers, with our support. In this community, there are needs all over. Financial, emotional, relational And how we care for one another in those situations. As the church should look different. Should be generous with one another. Serving one another. Because God has been generous and gracious to us. So a right fear of God produces a radical love for one another. That's God's heart. And I pray that we're a community that deeply fears God. And loves one another in a way to where a watching world is pointed to Jesus 
and his grace. Well, let's pray together. God, we thank you for Christ. Thank you that you've shown us great love. Thank you that you've shown us mercy and compassion and kindness. And I pray that we as a community would demonstrate that in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we enter in with one another, imitating and reflecting your heart to the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.